Do you like me garden? It's a gorgeous garden. I don't see any chickens though. No, the chickens are locked up. Well, not locked up. Sorry, Dara. <laughs> Your chickens are on lockdown. It's <laughs> we have had rowdy chickens. A lot of inside jokes here. First of all, I'm at home. Uh, secondly, my parents have chickens. So that's now you're all caught up. Uh, I'm also recording in my garden in case you hear the sounds of a quaint rural atmosphere. Or that's chickens having a prison riot. Or ch- <laughs> with chicken being shivved in the background. Chicken. Is it shivved or shanked? Do you shiv with it, a shank or do you shank with a shiv? I think you shank with a shiv. I think the I shiv thought you the, shiv. I thought you shiv with a shank. Do you like my mask? I love your mask. Well, as I said, we'll be back. That's do you know who, excellent. Do you know who I bought this off? I'm going to assume, just based on the line, it was Sylvester Stallone. Yeah. <laughs> Famous. His mask nerd. would just say, Adrian! <laughs> <across> <laughs> Sorry, no, I assume you bought this mask off Arnold Schwarzenegger or a foundation representing him. Uh, bought from Arnold Schwarzenegger on behalf of his foundation. Right. So I'm taking it, it off, though, because I'm sure it's making my mouth sound muffly, which isn't great. Well, we're going to talk about masks later, so... It's good to have props. I'll leave it hanging on one side. That's cool, isn't it? You know, when you go up to speak to people in a shop? Yeah. Otherwise, they can't hear you right otherwise. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Let me remove my mask. <laughs> Hopefully you can transmit it over podcasting. So here we are. Here we are. I'm in, I'm in, I am loving this garden lifestyle, Steve. I'm very relaxed. Yeah, you don't get that in London. Although you, you do when get... your neighbor, your downstairs neighbors let you borrow their garden. Yeah. It's less is... useful when you try to walk out the garden on your first floor and then just fall. <laughs> like Wiley Coyote. Yeah. The trick is to not look down. Once you look down, that's when you fall. That's true. I, d- I think there's a guy starting to cut grass over there. So apologies if you hear a lawnmower, but that's the price you pay for, you know, this rural lifestyle that I'm living. That's the price that our listeners pay for your. That's the price. Of, sorry, our listeners pay. I don't care. <laughs> do you like? Do you like my mug? It's Winnie the Pooh's bum, but then it's, it's front on the other side. So it's it's a large mug. On the front of it is Winnie the Pooh, and it looks like he's stuck through the mug. And then when you turn it around, ah, it's his bum. It's his bum. And there's the hint of an anus, which is accurate. Is there? Oh like, Jesus! You're right. Oh, I never See, noticed that. It makes way more. I watched that. Um, Lion King, the new one, not the live action because they're not real fucking lions, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, the the the, the new one, the CGI, CGI, yeah. realistic looking. Two problems: one, the cartoon lions don't emote, so like when they're having the big dramatic scenes from the from the nineties cartoon, which were great because you see, you know, anthropomorphized lions acting. In oh, this yeah. one, they're just like speaking, but they don't give a shit. It's no, like, I killed Mufasa, so. So, <laughs> you don't. If you don't care, why do I care? Yeah, exactly. And then the John other one Favreau. is none of them have any buttholes. No buttholes. None. None. Have you have you scrubbed through frame by frame looking for? Yeah, of course. What else am I going to do with my release Saturday? the butthole cut Disney? <laughs> do it. They've got them somewhere. You just know there's a first pass, a first render of all those animals, where someone there was some texture artist who was you know exclusively on butthole duty. Yeah, exactly. But then later on, uh, Bob Iger came in. Is like nah airbrush all that out so they have to remove there's a there's a folder a zip drive somewhere that's just filled with Disney buttholes which isn't fair because like Disney himself Walt Disney the original guy he was very pro buttholes all of his cartoon characters had buttholes if I remember that I remember Steamboat Willie was just he was pantless for one (laughs) Um, (laughs) so we're what on politics 
<laughs> We're a political podcast, as you have, can probably assume. As it goes without saying. I'm Steve. Yeah, and I'm Richie. I'm not in a garden. I am in a garden. I don't have it's- to worry about being shanked or shaved by chickens. I hope. Looking around at the... Da! <laughs> Just shout, da! <laughs> you've really you've really regressed to your teenage self. I can see my ma. Ma's cooking me dinner. She's cooking lovely, lovely Sunday roast. And the... Ma! Hiya! Yeah, I'm really regressing. It's fucking great. So yeah, I'm back in Ireland for a bit. I've, uh, I can do my job remotely, so I figured mm. I may as well come here where there's a big garden. You're doing it responsibly. I'm doing it responsibly, yeah. I wore two face masks when I was traveling home. Jesus. Which uh, probably an overkill, but here we are. Go home safe and sound. I'm doing my two-week lockdown here. And there are worse places to be for two weeks, Steve, I'll tell you that much. That's true. Yeah. Shall we talk about the news? Oh, should we talk about the news? Yeah, you have a hot take to give. Uh, masks are really cool right now. They're really so in. in. Yeah, so the first news story is just going to be all about masks. Look, Full disclosure, it's less about talking about new stories around masks and more just, you know, an open call to please start wearing them. We're starting to see, um, like, COVID cases are uh, not where they need to be at all. And we're starting to see kind of a shift in the discourse towards wearing mask, uh, masks. And that's been backed up by actual policy and actual requirements. So in the UK and Ireland, wearing masks on public transport has been a thing now for a while, but now we're going to be seeing that extended to shops as well. Um, America is like a whole other thing and we can talk about that later. But look, the end thing is, I know there's a lot of like people saying different things back and forth, but it's proven that masks reduce the transmission of droplets. Droplets can carry the virus if, if you have it. It's less about protecting yourself and more about protecting other people. That's the mindset. And that is... Maybe it's, to me, it's this idea of collectivism that's really lovely and really beautiful and very essential to society, but not a lot of people are getting on board with it because it's not looking out for number one necessarily. It's about protecting other people. But if everyone did it, it's proven that things would be in a much better place. And especially in America, where things are quite dire right now, I think they said that within six to eight weeks, if everyone wore a mask, the numbers would get down to way more manageable. Yeah. Way more manageable levels. And that's only six, eight weeks is not that long. Like it won't stop the disease from spreading because there are instances where you can't wear a mask if you're eating sure. or if you're drinking or whatever. And like there are people that genuinely can't wear a mask for whatever reason. I don't really want to go into the specifics about that because it's too complicated. But um, mm-hmm. it's it's also about being able to not be on full hide in your bedroom lockdown. Yeah. If we can let things go slowly back to normal, wearing masks is absolutely part of it. And yeah, it's essential. You can essential. buy them off cool people like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh my God, and there's so many options right now. I know at the start there was like, there was fear around um, taking them from frontline staff and shortages and everything. Yeah. But now we're at a point where, bloody hell, every everyone's pivoting to selling masks. Like I've bought masks. My first mask that I got was from um, a woman in our area just started making them because they're very easy to make at home if you have the sewing kit and you have the right materials. And um, her money went to, to she donated to NHS. And there's low, if you look on Etsy, if you look, Around yeah. the place. Masks. Yes, look, they're important. They're it's not good. the same as being in prison, people. It's not a big deal. Wear a fucking Yeah, mask. exactly. It's not infringing on your freedoms. This is the other thing. Talking about the USA, right? Dr. Anthony, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's the director of National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. So I've never heard his ma- name read out before. I've always thought it was Fauci. Fauci. Yeah, I never just... Fieri. Yeah, of course it's Fauci. Yes. Yeah, Continue. Fauci. Uh, uh, so yeah, so he, by all accounts, someone who knows what he's talking about um, has urged uh, state and local leaders to be as forceful as possible in getting people to wear masks because 
USA is in a dire state right now, and this is you know if people wear masks, it's a it's a it's a easy win. Like it's not a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to implement, I think. But the act of wearing a mask isn't hard, and it would make such big changes. Um, but in response to that, Trump um, saying he doesn't agree with a national mask mandate, saying that people should have quote quote a certain freedom. And this is feeding into this whole idea of masks being a, a political thing rather than, you know, a very basic health thing. Yeah. Um, and it's causing a lot of controversy, even though there's a lot of uh, state governors are now mandating wearing masks, including Republicans who have pivoted on the issue, which is great to see. Yeah. Because I gov- love what I see in politics, people changing their minds on stuff. And when presented with facts, I should say. We shouldn't berate them about it either. We should allow them to have... They're at the right to change their opinion. Oh, as absolutely, well. absolutely. Too Everyone often, you're like, "Oh, you flip flopping." Yeah, no. It's like if if you are changing your mind when presented with facts in a way that you know shows integrity, then we sh- that should be encouraged. I think. Um, it's so, like when we finally know, got Jared to believe that the world was round. Mm. Took for ages. Yeah, I, so I, I'm I'm thinking it's cylindrical now, but we'll talk about that in another episode. Uh, <laughs> no one's yeah, ever seen the top. <laughs> there's a resurgence of the virus, mostly in southern states, and these are areas where the idea of like oh my freedoms are you know maybe a little bit more prevalent than other places. Um, so look, long story short, if you're out and about and you can't wear a mask, please wear a mask. I will raise my hand and say I have been guilty of not doing it as much as I should in the past, um, and I'm now vowing to do it every chance that I can um, and encourage everyone else to do the same. I will link to, uh, there's a really good Irish Times article on like 20 um, kind of questions around wearing masks and busting myths and so on and so forth. That's very good. It clears up a lot of things that people have um, kind of doubts over what type of mask they should be wearing or when they should wear it or how do you clean it, all that kind of stuff. So I'll include that in the show notes. Yeah. Listen cool. to those people, smart people yeah, that do yes. research. Don't just Not listen us. to people going in and protesting in cheese restaurants for no reason. That's it. Uh, do you do you want to talk about it? Nope. No news. No news. No news is good news. Okay, let's 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 move on then to. Oh, we should talk about our ad. We've got an ad. You do, yeah. And it's an ad that you like have made progress on from the last one. It's I'm, not just like the same thing on repeat. There's going to be new stuff. Yeah, it's going to be new stuff. Uh, so we are. Uh, this this episode is brought to you by the UX Design Institute. We've talked about it before, but just to recap, Steve, do you know what UX is now? Website clicking. Yes, it's the process of uh, uh, designing and researching and creating software that makes your day and your life better, basically. Uh, and one thing I want to hit on that we maybe didn't hit on last time is that this is like a really cool and creative field to get into where jobs are on the rise and there's a like good money in it. So if you're at a bit of a crossroads, maybe because of COVID, you have some extra time on your hands, you're looking to pivot into a different area. UX design is something that can be done anywhere, be done remotely. You don't need to be a designer or have any coding experience to become a UX designer. You just really the main thing you need to be is curious and if you have that then you're you're away and if you're looking for somewhere to learn about this 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 subject the ux design institute is the best place to go uh it's university credit rated so that means that when you do get your qualification it like really means something it's not just some throwaway thing you did it's got like a serious weight and backing behind it it's a professional diploma and and it's internationally recognized which is huge so even in kildare even in kildare especially in kildare they're gagging for good UX down here in Kildare. Uh but yeah, I'm doing it. I'm 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 part of this course. So I, I think I already talked about I had my first my first webinar. I've been doing a little bit of studying on the side. It's really easy. You can kind of do it at your own pace. And I am loving it. I'm gonna be rolling in the dough, Steve. Can't wait. Buy, I could buy and sell your ass. Doesn't yeah. cost much, but yeah. <laughs> it's very low. 
It's a very low rate. But uh, if, if this is something that interests you, if you want to learn more, uh, then you can go visit uxdesigninstitute.com forward slash what am. There'll be a link to that in the show notes as well. Yeah, and get learning. Right, what are we going to talk about this week, Stephen? This time, I thought we would talk about something that's important to an awful lot of people. Money. Money. Ching, 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 ching. You need it. And considering... I made it, so I made it rain the other day, right? But I made it rain lettuce on the chickens. And I'm not even kidding. So <laughs> Keenan Lane came down to visit for a socially distanced brunch in our this outdoor patio I'm on right now. And with our leftover um, bits of lettuce, we went to the chicken coop and I threw it in at them. But I like flicked it like this, like making it rain. So that's where I'm at with money. Okay. <laughs> so I guess in the context of this one, you had all the capital and you were spreading it around. You weren't yes, hoarding it, it to yourself. No, and no. They weren't, yeah, you were spreading it to them lowly chickens so they could yeah. gobble it up, share, mm-hmm. share all the wealth. Uh, I thought we should talk about this considering that the world is in a bit of a dire strait, economically speaking. Mm-hmm. But it's a bit different to the last time when we had a massive recession and governments were getting having to get bailed out. This time, money's cheap. What is, well, hold on. <laughs> but money is the thing that defines whether something is cheap or not. Aha, but money is its own thing as well, you see. It's like, that's like saying water's wet. <laughs> Isn't it? Well, no, it's like saying water, th- this water is a moist. <laughs> but it is, it is, you're right. Sometimes <laughs> it is. Sometimes. How many different types of rain is there in Ireland? Come on, you know that water is not one cogent thing. That's true, that's true. There's at least uh, 12. There's at least 12, yeah. Uh, it's like the, the Inuit people having like 50 different names for snow. Kildare people have <laughs> a lot of different names for rain. Yes. Uh, but uh, so what? So explain to me the idea of water, water being cheap, <laughs> money being cheap. Money comes from somewhere. Money usually comes from your central bank. We've covered central banks before. Sure. Uh, so at, at the moment, because after the recession, the central bank slashed the price it costs to borrow money off them. Basically, the big banks take the money and then loan it out. They've mm-hmm. made it dirt cheap and it's gone down to the point where it's actually, it costs more to not borrow money from the central banks than it does to borrow money. Okay. So if you have a bazillion euros and you don't loan it out or spend it or use it for something, it'll actually depreciate in value if you put it to the central bank. They will take like 0.5% off that every year. Right. So you're better to spend it and not just spend it. You're better to borrow more and put it in. So all this is going on at the top level and it's fed into why there's been a massive stock market boom. The stock market has never been higher, even though there's all these hundreds of millions of people losing their jobs because of lockdown and shit. There is Mm -hmm. still a massive glut of money flowing around, but not flowing around. I thought that was because Trump. Well, that's what he would like to think. But (laughs) the problem is, is that the money is not trickling down. That's what they always say. Oh, you put it in at the top, it'll trickle down. Yeah. So... There are people that have ideas about how to do this cheap money thing better and use it for better ways to help more people. But Steve, who? 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 A guy that used to lecture me, actually. Really? Yeah, when I, I didn't mention that. When I was in um, UCD doing my master's in international political economy, this yeah. dude was my lecturer, I think, in qualitative methods. Well, Ooh. now he is- Were you a, like the bad boy in the classroom, just like with a straw, spitting wads of paper at him? No, I was like the dumb boy going, uh? <laughs> you had the dunce's hat in the corner. Yeah. <laughs> Just look out the window, Steve. You'll be happier. And I was. So he is an associate. Uh, sorry, his name is Aidan Regan. Mm. He's an associate professor at UCD and he is an academic in the field of political economy. And we had him on to talk about capital, that thing that is big piles of money. We were talking specifically about, I should point this out because this confused me at the start when you first pitched this to me. It's the 
politics of capital, not political capital. Yes, they're different. Which things. is a different thing. Different things. Different. This is the politics of capital, like politics money. of capital. Yeah. Many. One day we will do political capital. That's our white whale. Political capital. Does we tried make- to do an episode on it before, but uh, are you Ahab? Huh? Are you Ahab? I, th- I think we're both the whale. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the boat. Which one's Ishmael? Ishmael. Call me Ishmael? Isn't that not the first line of Moby Dick? How the fuck do I know? <laughs> I've been read Moby Dick. I'm looking out the window here. You're fucking bringing up classic American literature. I thought we were talking about muddy. <laughs> Isn't water wet? Uh, we've yet to see. Well, may- maybe maybe this episode will clear that up. So let's play it now. How's your, how's your lockdown setup over there? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Amazing how quick we adapt to um, to, to to change. Um, is it is adapt in quotes there when you say that? Yeah, no, no, no. It's like I, I mean, I'm, I'm I mean, as an academic, I work from home a lot anyway. Um, right. So it's not a huge transition for me to 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 be working from home pretty much every day. And uh, yeah, so as long as I have access to decent Wi-Fi, um, I can do most of my work. To be honest, nice. Do you have any pets? That's one thing that every person we interview now on Zoom seems to have a pet. Yeah, we have a cat and uh, the door is closed now, so she won't be coming in. But Aww. she has been known to make an appearance. Oh, <laughs> if you want to leave the door open so a cat can make a guest appearance, I won't be mad. But that's up to you. Um, should we get into it, Steve? Yeah, sure. I have only got a few pennies in my and a bit of lint in my bank account. Um, why should I give a crap about the politics of the massive amounts of cash to fly around the world between billionaires and corporations. Well, I suppose you should care because you probably should have access to some of it. Um, <laughs> you know, if the if capital is so unequally distributed and concentrated in the hands of so few people, then most people don't have ownership of assets and capital, which suggests that we have a very skewed and unequal system, which would suggest that we have quite extreme levels of wealth inequality. So you're quite right, though, that when people think about capital, they think about oh, the few hundred euros they have in the bank accounts. I mean, I don't have the data for Ireland, but as far as I'm aware, the most recent research I've read in the United States of America is that something like three quarters of the American population wouldn't be able to afford a once-off bill of 700 quid, right? which would suggest that people don't have savings, really. Um, so, you know, people think about cash in the bank as their capital, their, their wealth, or they think about the house and housing is very important here. And it seems to me that housing is increasingly the, uh, politicized issue when it comes to access to wealth and wealth inequality. But most people either will have a mortgage or they're lucky enough to own a house outright, um, and they will have cash in the bank. So very few people of let's say your age, my age, will not have liabilities. So they'll have more debt than they'll have liabilities. Um, But at the same time, we're being told, as you said, that we live in an extremely rich world, that there's plenty of capital floating around, Um, but it's not equally shared. And the question for me is, I don't want, I'm not suggesting, or I don't think I would want to live in a world whereby there's absolute 100% equal ownership of all capital. But, you know, what's the balance, right? If the top 10% of the population own 90% of the assets, then we clearly have a capital-owning class of people at the top. 
And even when you break down those capital assets, you'll find that actually ownership of real wealth, which is the ownership of stocks, really, the ownership of equity in firms, um, and increasingly that's not even tangible capital, it's intangible capital, is even is highly concentrated, not even in the top 1%, but the top 0.1%. I mean, housing is the asset of the working and middle classes. So the top 10%, let's say, own 90% of the assets, or let's say 20 on 80%, what kind of world do we want to live in? 60-40, you know? So should that be the fair distribution? Um, I would prefer to live in a world where there's more equal ownership of assets and wealth, uh, and there's less wealth inequality. And if anybody is committed to capitalism, right, and that's the sort of world they should live in too. So if you were being, if libertarians and free market capitalists were being consistent in their preference for a property-owning uh, democracy or a property-owning capitalist democracy, then they would want to have much more widespread distribution of wealth and assets. Do you think the trajectory we're currently on, using these ratios that you've you've described, are, are we going further away from that 60-40 or is there any hope of veering around to a 60-40? Like what, give me a snapshot of the current landscape. Yeah, no, I don't think we're, we're we are very far away from the 60-40 split and it would take, it would take some pretty, pretty radical uh, policies to shift that distribution. Um, and it would have to include everything from, I don't know, a national wealth fund aimed at redistributing assets. It would have to include much more affordable housing. It would have to include wealth taxes. It would have to include public policies that actively try to distribute wealth in a more equal way. We don't live in that world. Um, on the contrary, if you look at what's happening at monetary, let's get slightly technical. If you look at what's happening at the European level, right? If you look at the European Central Bank, if you look at the monetary interventions they've made in the aftermath of the financial crisis, and now in the aftermath of the COVID-19 crisis, they're effectively making money available for nothing, right? They're saying to banks that they can borrow from them at negative real interest rates on the assumption that they lend that out into the real economy. Now, is that happening? If so, where is it going? If the bank, the central banks of the world are literally creating trillions, right? Trillions of money available, then who, who owns it? Where's it going? It's clearly driving up the price of assets. So you have a bit of a stock market bubble and they're making these interventions uh, precisely to try to keep stability in the financial market. But stability in the financial market also means rising asset prices. And if assets are held by very few people, then that simply means the rich are getting richer. So, you know, the question then is, uh, what type of monetary policies would the central bank pursue that would lead to a more 60-40 split or a more equal distribution of wealth? But one of the things they could do quite simply is just transfer cash into people's bank accounts, mm. right? Um, and people think, oh, that's a radical, crazy idea. That can never happen. Well, why not? If the central bank are doing this anyway, and they're relying upon the private banks and the private financial sector to be the mechanism to, to, to get that into the, into the real economy. Uh, but it's not actually happening. Mark Blythe gives a, little, a great kind of analogy on this. He says that it's like sticking a hose in your letterbox uh, as a mechanism to fill the kettle, you know? Um, so if you want to fill the <laughs> It kettle, will eventually get there. It'll get there eventually, right? You close all the windows, you block up everything. You know, it'll get there eventually. But if you really want people to spend money in the economy to kickstart a bit of inflation and growth to stimulate aggregate demand, well, then just give cash directly to people. 
You know, you could give a thousand euros to every household every quarter until you reach full employment. Why not, right? It's a much more effective mechanism uh, to generate growth in the economy. So it seems to me that there's no, it's not that these things are technically not doable, what's lacking fundamentally is, is political will and political imagination and, and some sort of progressive political agent that will be willing to make these arguments. Uh, and that's, that's fundamentally what's lacking. So then to roll it back a little bit, um, we've talked about political agency and decisions being made. Um, the way it is at the moment, essentially, these these trillions are being pumped in to support the banks, as you say, and the people that deal in the asset management and stock sharing. And I guess that's happening worldwide with the money flying around between all the different markets. But has it always been this easy or were there steps taken to break down the barriers and let the money flow for the people that have it? Yeah, it's a good question. Has it always been this easy? Probably not, right? Um, so the big qualitatively different world that we live in today vis-a-vis the past is a world of real negative interest rates, right? That's unprecedented. So if you think about it in the following way, you know, central banks have, you know, solved the inflation problem, right? That's what central banking monetary policy was designed to do in the called neoliberal period with the collapse of the kind of Keynesian paradigm from the post-1970s onwards up until the present, let's say. And they've got on top of inflation. They've managed to basically reduce and get rid of inflation. So price inflation is not a problem. But at the same time, you've got rising unemployment. At the same time, you've got underinvestment. At the same time, you've got secular stagnation. At the same time, you've got climate crisis. So it's like, well, hold on a second. Have the central banks run out of ammunition? Can they do nothing anymore? Are they effectively defunct? Well, I would agree with the kind of people like Eric Lonergan, Mark Blight, and many others in the kind of heterodox, you could say, economic community would say, no, actually, this is, this is a real opportunity. Um, because you can use real negative interest rates to make very important strategic investments, right? So, for example, um, real negative interest rates mean that, in effect, you know, the, the Irish government can borrow tomorrow, right, say a 20-year bond at 0%. Let's say they took Let's say they issued, I don't know, 20% of their national income, 20% of GDP uh, at, at negative rates or 0%. And they bought up, you know, a diversified set of assets, right? And they've got a return from those. Well, they could effectively pay off the debt in 15 years and be, and be the owners of pretty significant capital assets, which would generate an income for the state. Or they can just choose to directly borrow at negative rates to build infrastructure, right? Uh, and so on. So this, this world of being able to access cash money for effectively nothing is something that's quite different. Now, the question that most people, I think, should be asking, but I don't think are asking enough, is that, well, hold on a second. If it is indeed the case that we can borrow for nothing, why then are we not solving many crucial problems in our society, like housing? like infrastructure. Surely we can. My response to that question is, yes, we can. <laughs> Actually, we can. But why are we not doing it? But that's a political question. There's a political obstacle there. And the political obstacle is that we have this inbuilt kind of instruction sheet, set of ideas, set of political actors who are just not willing to do that. Now, I think it will only be a matter of time before countries and politicians start to do it. And it just takes one or two of them to basically start doing it and then everybody else will follow. Um, But it's just not sustainable what we're doing at the moment, um, whereby monetary policy is designed fundamentally to try to kickstart growth, inflation, employment, but it's not happening. It's not working. And it's precisely because the money is not going where it needs to go. It's not going into the hands of households or small businesses. And that's really where it needs to go. And therefore, we need to think about the 
the instruction sheet that we have. And that means, you know, you can call it quantitative easing for the people. You can call it different things like that. But this whole real negative interest rate environment is for many like, people like Eric Lonergan have described it as discovering oil. You know, we should be taking it. It really is an opportunity that we should be using. Um, but again, why we're not doing it is fundamentally a political question. But then to use the uh, same analogy, does oil not run out? <laughs> yeah, I mean, in a sense, you, you wouldn't want to be doing this indefinitely, right? And this is perhaps where I would disagree with kind of modern monetary theory. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that book by Stephanie Kelton, and the, the, the deficit myth. You know, what I, so, uh, let me just explain that really briefly. You know, you had this crisis in 2008. They have the present COVID-19 crisis. And I think the whole paradigm, the kind of market liberal paradigm has just been shattered. The kind of centrist technocracy has been shattered. But there hasn't been a kind of a, a policy response, a progressive policy response, you could say. Now, it has been captured by kind of nationalist, tribalist type politics. But what, 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 would, what would something else look like? Now, I don't necessarily agree with everything in this thing called modern monetary theory. But I do think it has provided a set of ideas that at least kickstarts a debate. And their argument is that there's never, when, when you can issue your own currency, you're never going to have a problem of nominal demand. You know, you can always issue currency to generate growth in the economy. And if you get too much growth and a bit of inflation, well, you introduce taxes to kind of in a counter-cyclical way. Now, that's all well and good for a big country like the United States of America that has complete control over its monetary policy. Not so easy in a place like Ireland. But, um, but the point being that, you know, what I'm suggesting here would not be a good idea if we had full employment and all of the issues in society were solved because you would get inflation and you would end up creating all sorts of problems. So you wouldn't be doing it indefinitely. You would be doing it to solve concrete problems. So it's the classic Keynesian perspective and the classic Keynesian idea that, you know, you do these things when you need to and you do different things when you don't need to do them. But at this point in time, when you have access to real negative interest rates, which means you can borrow literally for nothing to make important strategic investments in society, if that generates and solves many problems, you begin to, well, you roll back on it. Now, you might say in response to me, well, politicians will never roll back on that. And that would be the kind of concern that many conservatives would have, for example, that once you give the politicians these tools, uh, they're going to hold on to them forever. So would we also need taxes to keep up with this spending? And does the current international system make it too easy to avoid paying these taxes? Well, I mean, let's kind of, if you, we can talk about this globally or at the European level or in the Irish context. So they kind of have slightly different dimensions. Which one is the pre preferable to talk about? Apple. <laughs> Apple Corporation working in Europe and Ireland to funnel money back to the US. In the Irish case, I don't think we take in sufficient revenue. I think we have a relatively low tax to income ratio, which means that if I was like, the way I think about it is you have only two ways to fund the state, taxes and public debt. Now I prefer to think about public debt as public credit, taxes and public credit. You know, if you have zero taxes, right, you don't take in any revenue, you know, you're not going to be able to borrow money because nobody's going to trust you to be able to, be ever able to pay it back. But the, the whole idea of a sovereign legal state is that you have indefinite uh, taxing uh, ability. So you can tax whenever you want and you can tax whatever you want. So you can always generate taxes. Now taxes can be, that, that's the first thing. So in Ireland, we take in about 36% of gross national income in taxes, which for a small open economy in Northwest Europe is actually quite low. 
Most other small open economies in Northwest Europe would take in about 45%, which means you can do very different things, right? If you're taking in 35% of national income or 45% of national income, a very different amounts of resources. One country is going to be in a much better position, for example, to make new investments in new public services like, I don't know, universal childcare provision than another country. And it seems to me that the main problem in Ireland about moving towards new public services and new social investments, we just don't take in enough taxes. I don't think it's a good idea to borrow or to use public credit to fund consumption, for example. I don't think it's a good idea to do that to fund public sector pay or to fund public services that require current expenditure, which is compounded and grows every year. No, it's a good idea to use public credit to make strategic capital investments, right? That that will ultimately generate long-term productivity growth and improve the infrastructure of society. Now, you could turn around and say to me that, well, what's, what's capital infrastructure? What's public infrastructure? Is it housing? I would say yes. Does it include transport? I would say yes. Does it include kind of building the capital infrastructure to provide better service in our schools and hospitals? I would say yes. Does it mean investing in new companies to generate cleaner technology and energy? I would say possibly yes as well. So again, it's just about imagination and ideas, but not a good idea to use that to fund current expenditure on public services. That's what you need to tax, right? Now, you mentioned Apple there, and we can have a conversation about Ireland being a corporate uh, the, the European corporate tax centre for big tech companies from Silicon Valley, I mean, and, and the kind of contemporary tax haven status that Ireland has. Uh, and that opens up a whole new set of questions, of course, which have much more global distributional consequences. Well, let's open them up. So who, in whose interest is it that Apple is able to pay such low taxes on its income from Europe? Apple shareholders, right? The property owners of Apple. Um, which is back to your first question, why should we care about capital and why should we care about uh, the distribution of capital? Well, because, you know, some people have lots of it and they benefit massively from it uh, and they end up living a certain lifestyle that 99.9% of people can't live. Um, so the main beneficiaries are clearly the owners of Apple. Now, the Apple tax case is interesting in the following way. I mean, Apple does have a presence in Ireland. Uh, it does have actual activities here, which means that it's able and was able to create this corporate structure of creating a company within a company of another company, such that it was able to shift its income and profits and assets into a particular company that was effectively stateless, right? Which meant that it didn't pay tax, which is just like and any base level understanding of moral kind of fairness is hugely problematic. And it should generate moral outrage. If, if, you're, if you're not pissed off about that, you should be, right? Because it's not right when you're paying almost 40% of your income labor, income in taxes, and somebody who's a trillion-dollar company pays nothing. It's just, it's just deeply unfair. And most people will recognize that unfairness. So the thing, though, with Apple in Ireland is that, you know, the European Union's ruling was not built around... It, it was basically suggested that the Irish state had... Um, facilitated all of this and that broke the rules of the single market. It broke the rules of competition. It undermined competition law and so on. And I think that's a very clever and strategic way to get at this issue. But um, but Apple have since changed their structures again. This is what's most interesting. So say that 13 billion and the EU is saying to Ireland, you cannot have a company that's stateless in your country that's avoiding its taxes elsewhere you have to enforce your 12.5% rate on those profits. And that equals, let's say, 14 billion. And the Irish state is saying, well, it's not our money. And that's kind of true. It's not Irish money. 
It really should go to taxpayers in America, the United States, or it should go to taxpayers where the actual activity was generated, let's say from sales in Spain or Italy, right? That's real. So it's not Irish money. It belongs to other people. And that's why the Irish state is kind of leaving it in this account, which apparently is costing a lot of money to service, by the way. Um, but Apple have already moved two steps ahead of everybody else. So they've now shifted their intellectual property into Ireland. That's what the whole leprechaun economics thing. When the Irish economic growth rate jumped up to 26% in 2016, there seems to be a consensus now, although it's hard to get direct empirical measures of this, that this was fundamentally a function of Apple shifting its, its intellectual property uh, into Ireland. And it can do that because it actually does have activity here. Nobody can say that Apple is a shell company. It's not like what goes on in the shadow banking sector in the IFSC. It's not a shell company. It does have actual activities here. And kind of ironically, Ireland is being a massive beneficiary of the fact that these tech companies have got a presence here because the OECD and the EU is clamping down on explicit tax havens in the Caribbean and the Virgin Islands and so on, where there's no activity. And these companies are having to shift their assets now into places where they do have activity. And Ireland is one of the places where they do have activity. And that's what's happening at the moment. That's why you're seeing all this massive growth in corporate tax revenue to such an extent that nearly 20% of total revenue uh, in Ireland comes from the corporate tax sector, which is huge. On average in the OECD, it's about 5%. Um, so yeah, Ireland struck gold in that sense. I don't. I didn't see any of it. Richie might have. <laughs> yeah, I, I worked in the tech. I worked in one of the Dublin tech companies for a while. They called it the international headquarters, but it it wasn't really like that's you, all the big wigs. From Kildare, that's didn't far enough. Yeah, for me. <laughs> yeah, no, but the point you raise, I didn't see it either. And the reality is, most people don't see it. Mm. Uh, you mentioned we touched on it a little bit there about the effects of the two thousand and eight crash, but could we speak more broadly about what that the implications of that on political capital or the politics of capital, I should say. You had this transatlantic banking crisis, which crashed, which was built around a financial system that securitized lending, particularly for mortgages. And then within the context of the Eurozone, because you've got 19 different countries all issuing currency over which they have limited control, and the European Central Bank belatedly intervened, you had this kind of financial market picking off countries because they were terrified that they weren't going to get their money back. And you had austerity and all these terrible ideas that were introduced and you know, decimated some countries and some countries really still suffering from that like Italy. Things haven't changed that much in terms of the politics of capital. Small businesses still relatively struggle to have access to, to capital. Big businesses have easier access. So if you think about it, let's say more concretely, let's pick one policy area. Let's pick housing, right? Because it's, it's an important issue. Why is it that all of a sudden, they just, if you think about the Irish case, financial crisis, the asset prices, housing prices collapsed, the debt of the banks went up, the debt of the banks became joined to the state, so it became public debt. And then Ireland is in this pretty radical experiment called the Eurozone and doesn't have control over its currency, gets priced out of international markets, gets a non-financial loan to pay for the day-to-day -day running of the public sector with strict conditionalities attached and pursues pretty radical austerity measures. You know, you have a distressed economy with housing prices and, and housing all gone down. But then all of a sudden, you know, what does the state do in order to manage the balance sheet, the public debt, to improve the balance sheet of the banks? Well, it actively invites international capital into the country to buy up those distressed assets at very, very low prices, which is exactly what happened. 
Now you could say, well, how is it possible that somebody came in and bought up, I don't know, uh, a plot of land or development for, of apartments and commercial building for I know, 30 million. Well, if you're an international investor, 30 million is a drop in the ocean. In addition to the fact that you now have easy access to capital because the central banks are giving it away for nothing. Now, me or you couldn't have access to that capital. You know, the small business down the road doesn't have access to that capital. The small builder doesn't have access to that capital. Clearly, the beneficiaries of it are international investors. It's like playing Monopoly. The more you have, the easier you can accumulate. So that's exactly what happened. And they bought up all these distressed assets, held on to them, waited for the price to go back up again, made a ton of money off it, or they basically sat on it, invested it, and rented it out at extremely high prices to the rest of us. So there's a clear winner there, right? The clear winner is the ownership of those assets. And that's back to your initial question, why should we care about this? Because it's better to actually own the house or that you, you know, to a certain extent, than pay rent, extortionate rent to somebody else who owns 50 of them. Um, and that, to me, is the real inequality here with which the central bank is doing, because it's making cash available to big investors for nothing, but me and you don't have access to it. We have to rent it off them. So what you have is rent-seeking capital, and rent-seeking capital is the total opposite of entrepreneurial capital. Uh, it is like 19th century uh, France. So then to, to paraphrase what you were saying, after 2008, nothing changed and things almost nearly got worse for, for most people. Yeah. Absolutely. In terms of, and I, absolutely, I think they did get worse. And I think that's why we've seen, you know, I don't like the word populism, but I think that's why we've seen such a, uh, people had, have legitimate grievances, right? The system didn't change. It was an opportunity to depress the reset button. It was an opportunity to kind of update the operating system of capitalism. Um, but that's not what happened. Rather, it was business as usual, you know, and, and those who had basically crashed the economy basically got away with everything, and then they took everything. And then you had a growth in wealth and income inequality, right? This is just extraordinary. And then you had a recession, growing unemployment, increased precarity, more uncertainty. Of course, people are pissed off, you know? Now, the question is, some politicians have manipulated that, and they've tapped into people's anger and, and given people like different kind of avenues to express that anger. Um, but it seems to me that, of course, the financial crises and the fault lines that it exposed showed and amplified uh, the problems that exist in society. And, and that's why we have this kind of populist response because they may not have the answers, but it's a legitimate grievance. So I guess the ones you'd be saying that would tap into it would be the likes of Donald Trump maybe and the, the purveyors of Brexit. They would be some of the people tapping yeah. into it. Oh, we could go on. We could talk about Trump. We could talk about Brexit. We could talk about alternative for Deutschland in Germany. We could talk about Marine Le Pen in, in Italy. We could talk about, you know, um, Matteo Salvini and Lega in Italy. We could talk about Viktor Orban. We could talk about, uh, you could look at what's happening in, in, in Russia with Putin. You could talk about Modi in Italy. You know, there, there's no shortage of, of you know, we live in the politics has changed. Um, and the, clearly there's been a nationalist response and a, a more right-wing nationalist response, uh, an authoritarian right-wing nationalist response. And if you look at what Trump said, like he said different things to different people. When I mean, he won the election on the basis of, let's say, 100,000 votes at the margin, and it was those 100,000 votes in the, in, the, in the Rust Belt of the United States of America where he was talking about bringing the factories back and he was talking about, you know, the rise of China and international trade and globalization and, you know, the elites and the coasts are, you know, undermining you and I'm kind of... Drain the swamp. Yeah, exactly. So they, that's what won in the election, right? No doubt he was speaking, you know, kind of 
straight up racist language down the south. Um, but in those particular regions, it was all about the economy, and that's what won him the election. And you know, when you think about Brexit, like what a brilliant slogan, take back control, you know? If you've just had 15 years of Tory austerity and you're being told by your right-wing tabloid press that it's all it's the immigrant and the European Union's fault why you feel this way, of course they vote to, to, to leave, you know? Um, so yeah, no, I think it has been very cynically exploited by, by certain sections of the media and certain politicians and more than likely, or most of the time, if not all of the time, these same media and same politicians are not the ones who are suffering. No, because indeed, if you want to use Donald Trump as an example, he went on and uh, nominated the most, the richest cabinet that's ever sat in the United States. But then to, to ask a question, there have been other political movements to the left that would have been labeled as populist as well. But I guess if we were to take them at their word, they are actually wanting to bring in policies that would benefit the working people that we've been talking about that have been hurt by this, by this cap, yeah. the capital system that's there, the likes of Bernie Sanders and Corbyn. But both of those movements in particular have run in, diff, in two separate elections and didn't win either of them. So, I mean, is there any way we can explain why they're not achieving electoral success? If you look at Corbyn, I think the problem with Corbyn, quite frankly, was Corbyn. <laughs> and, and it wasn't so much... It wasn't so much the ideas. Well, what and about Glastonbury and oh, Jeremy Corbyn? Yeah. <laughs> it, was the, it was the kind of just the, the, the wrong guy with the right movement to a certain extent. Yeah, he cared more about <laughs> Palestine than he did about capital flows. <laughs> so just like, you know, it was just very hard to, to, to feel like, to, and we know this from research that leadership increasingly matters, right? And the narrative that you tell increasingly matters. And the left always struggles to have a popular narrative because it really gets bogged down in policy. You end up talking to kind of technocrats and you end up talking to people like me who want to solve concrete problems. And, you know, but you, you need a narrative, you need a story to tell. And Corbyn lost that election because he had nothing to say, a total strategic disaster. And it was a strategic disaster from day one where he should have just went either way. Either he should have said, we're sticking with the European Union, I'm going to campaign to stay in the EU, I'm going to make the case for the EU, I'm going to fight to reform the EU, fight for a social democratic position in the EU, I'm going to bring the people along the north and tell them why they're better. And he should have ran with that. Or he should have said, yeah, let's get out of this. Let's build social democracy at the national level. Let's actually retake back control. And this is, if you want Tory austerity, it was one or the other. It was not this kind of halfway house yeah. where he was saying, which do you oh, believe that's... in? <laughs> exactly. So this was a total disaster. And then with, with Sanders, I mean, again, it's worth keeping in mind how successful Bernie Sanders was and how successful he has been in shifting the narrative within the Democrats. You know, the Democrats talk a language and are suggesting policies now which they would have never said. Uh, 10 years ago, certainly not under the Clinton, in the Clinton area. You know, if you look at, like, uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren's policies as well, you know, wealth taxes and so on. Now, I think the reason why the Sanders didn't actually get to be the nominee is because I think the policy wonks have done their detailed research and it was fairly obvious that he would struggle to beat Trump. Um, and at the margins, he was not going to, his kind of democratic socialist message was not going to get the Democrats over the line. So they had to go with someone like Biden, who, according to the detailed research in the polls, would suggest that he might actually beat Trump. So there was this sense that we just need to get rid of Trump rather than endorse Biden. And I think that's what's happening with the Democrats at the moment. But I think Bernie Sanders has fundamentally changed um, uh, the Democratic Party. Then if you take a look at what happened, you could look at Portugal, you could look at Spain, right? The emergence of Podemos in Spain shifted the centre-left. It shifted, sorry, the centre-left to the left, right? They're now in coalition together, uh, in government together. 
But it was the emergence of Podemos that ultimately generated, you know, the kind of more leftward turn of the Social Democrats, the, the Socialist Party in Spain. If you look at the kind of coalition of the left in Portugal, so there are examples of where the left have done particularly well. But, you know, it's, but to link it back to, your, to the initial observation, it seems to me that the left will struggle unless they have some sort of civic nationalist story to tell. And arguably that's why Sinn Féin are successful in Ireland, because they have a civic nationalist story to tell. It's a left populist civic nationalism, if you like. But it allows them to build a very diverse coalition, which includes the kind of hardcore old shinners who only care about the four green fields, who are probably to the right, you know, and the kind of the young graduate who, you know, works and who's paying three quarters of our salary and rent, um, but would ne- you would never typically associate with Sinn Féin. So they built a kind of a, a Corbyn-esque, Bernie Sanders-type coalition, arguably, right? Um, now, the question is, is it something qualitatively unique to Ireland, or can other left parties in Europe do something like that without having a nationalist story to tell? That's an open question. So we generally like to do this at the end of our, our interviews, just to try and end on a hopeful note. Sometimes it doesn't happen because, you know, reality and gestures broadly at the world. But are, are you hopeful? Yes, I am. Oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, be surprised how often that, that just falls through. <laughs> I am, and I'll tell you why. You know, I, I always believe that things can get better. You have to. The alternative is just pure pessimism. That, Stability. So pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will, as Gramsci said, you know, that's the way I would approach it. If I have a pessimistic dimension, it's that I look at the political space and I don't see, you know, a progressive agent of change. I look at the left parties and I see just constant infighting. You know, the right are much more successful at uniting and keeping their differences uh, within closed doors, for example. Um, the left are very, I struggle with that clearly. Now, I'm not saying there's a kind of that everything left is great and everything right is wrong, nor do I think that kind of the technocratic center is the way to go. But I do think there are concrete solutions that are available. And I talk and I see even with my own students, you know, there's no shortage of, of, of optimism, of ideas, etc. And I think it's important, and this is what I think people forget, it's important to acknowledge the changes that have happened and how things have improved. You know, there's often this sense that everything is getting worse it's not really, you know, you do have to take a step back and have a good detailed analysis of what has actually improved. And we could talk all day about that in terms of health outcomes, in terms of demographic changes, you know, but there are certain concrete problems that need to be solved. One of them is housing and making sure that people have access to good quality, affordable housing, because if they don't, there's going to be a lot of very angry people out there. And it seems to me that housing, particularly for your generation, my generation, and I imagine we're not that far apart, housing access is, is, is really crucial. And the other one is, is, is kind of the uncertainty and the precarity around income and employment, right? You know, heightened uncertainty about whether or not you're going to have a job next week or next month is really problematic. And I think this is one of the big failures of the neoliberal area, you know, and you still see it around that everybody's going to be, you know, a you know, self-made entrepreneur and all this. So, no, people need certainty. They need certainty of income. They need certainty of employment. Uh, and so if you, get, if you get those basic things right and you give people a sense of security and safety, then I think it's a lot easier to talk about other stuff. It's very easy to exploit people's kind of tribal uh, anger and anxiety 
when they feel like crap, when they feel uncertain, when they feel like they haven't got any hope. You know, if there's no hope, you can exploit these people very easily. Um, and that's where I think manipulation comes in. So I am optimistic. Um, and I am optimistic that uh, change can come. And I'm optimistic that there's there's, there's, there's no shortage of solutions. And uh, so, yeah. Thanks very much. That was great. Yeah. Um, I feel a lot more hopeful about my uh, pennies and lint in the bank anyway. <laughs> uh, you've also got that moth that flies out of your wallet when you open it up sometimes. Yeah, but you see, that's, uh, that's floating capital. I don't have access to that all the time, you see. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Aiden, thank you so much. Well, you're welcome. We didn't find out if water was wet. No, but he talks about lots of other very important and interesting things. Absolutely. Including Satan Regan's uh, Twitter and stuff. Below. Yeah, you should definitely check Good it out. Enough. He tweets a lot of uh, really interesting stuff. It's be- actually, we mentioned in the episode about the Apple taxation case. Yeah. Uh, that has actually, since we recorded, been decided. So the um, European court actually overturned mm-hmm. the decision by the commission to make Ireland pay the fine. So mm-hmm. at the moment, Ireland have to give the money back to Apple and it's a good thing too because those guys are really struggling it's, so, it's such a hard it's such a hard landscape and climate for startups have you ever noticed that Apple yeah that you know that small these, company these, no no these kids need a leg up I think yeah. and I'm glad that Ireland being the big massive booming uh, economy that it is was able to, yeah. to help these give these guys uh, these kids a dig out so it will be appealed and yeah. potentially the money will go back to hi Mammy. do you want to be on the podcast Mammy? Hi Stephen. Can you hear me? Hi. He says hi. Hi. What do you think of Trump, Mammy? Rubbish. You rubbish. <laughs> there, as Mammy knows, political hot take. Trump is Trump it's is as, rubbish. It's as accurate as any I've ever heard. It's, it's succinct. It's probably the most succinct take we've had. Um, Mammy knows our biggest fan. Uh, but yeah, another good episode in the bag, Steve. Uh, what on politics at gmail.com if you want to send us a message about what you want to hear us talk about next maybe make a suggestion or let us know your thoughts on that we've talked about at what on politics on twitter and on instagram you can give us some more money mm, money's cheap beer, beer, <laughs> money is cheap money's cheap but so beer isn't yeah so you know you may as well put that money into whatonpolitics.com forward slash beer otherwise you'd be losing money technically exactly if you don't give us that money it'll just disappear it'll just it'll be gone according to what Steve said earlier so your your best the best return on investment you can get is whatonpolitics.com forward slash beer give it to us we'll take care of it Um, we'll put it into we'll put it into a mutual fund and by that I mean our bellies that's what I call my belly (laughs) so yeah go get on that um, if you want to leave us a review in Apple Podcast, that'd be lovely. That'd be absolutely lovely. Five Spread the word. If, Tell if people can. about it. Tell people. We haven't said that in a while. Just, just word them out. Just go up, go up to someone. Go up to your friend. Look them deep in the eye and say while wearing a mask or from two meters away. Actually, don't look them deep in the eye. From two meters away, with just, binoculars. Yeah, just fucking message it to them. That's fine. Steve, I think we're going to go and have a lovely home cooked Sunday roast. Nice. In my beautiful rural. Irish garden quite jealous yeah how can I go back to London after this Steve mm-hmm. I don't know it's full of London people if I bring this Winnie the Pooh bum mug with me I think I'll go a long way to helping alright talk to you later Steve bye bye This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network.